Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of Tara, where I'm recording today. Uh, so this week we're reading chapters 9 and 10 through the theme of fate. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, do you have a story about fate that you'd like to share with us? So fate was an interesting one for me to think about. I couldn't really come up with a story. I feel like there's definitely been moments in my life where I've gone, oh, this is fate, you know, where you feel it. But when I was trying to think about it to sum up here, I just couldn't pin any one thing down. But then I also feel like the fact that I'm living in Wellington feels like fate. Um, So I ended up moving to Wellington in 2014. And the reason I moved here is that I got a job. I applied for the job as a bit of a joke. I didn't think I would get it. I had no anticipation of getting it or what it would actually mean if I did. I was living in Perth at the time and my dad saw it on Facebook and sent it to me. um, Because it was with a brand that I really quite admired and was passionate about. And it was for a digital content production role, which was, you know, tangential to what I was doing. So it seemed like a good fit. And I just applied because why not, right? Um, And six months later, lo and behold, I got it. And I was like, okay, guess I'm moving to Wellington and I'll just do it for a year. At the time, I was also doing a PhD and I actually thought I could do some really good research in Wellington. It would be really related to what I was trying to do. And it felt like I could make it all align and make sense. So yeah, I ended up moving here, having spent less than 24 hours in the city previously. I didn't know anyone. I just came because, yeah, partly I admit because I loved Lord of the Rings and New Zealand has always appealed to me. Um, But yeah, I ended up settling into the job. And then towards the end of that first year, I started to have a really rough time at work. Um, I was just really tired and overworked. And there was this contractor who was making my life hell. And I'd call my mum in tears and just be like, I don't know why I'm here. It was never my plan. I don't know why I'm doing this. And there was a moment where I was definitely, that's it. I'm going to finish this year and then I'm going to leave. It's enough. I'm done. But at the same time as I was having these thoughts, I met a boy at my local cafe. And we just sort of bonded over the fact that we both loved Harry Potter and weird British comedies. And that was enough for me to go, oh no, I think there's potential here for something and I kind of owe it to myself to see where that goes. And that felt like fate intervening. I stayed, obviously, and I fell in love with this boy and we ended up having this five-year relationship and that kept me in Wellington. So then we flash forward to the end of 2019 and I was having a horrific time and basically had a complete mental breakdown. I needed to find a new job and there just weren't any jobs in Wellington. I was getting really disheartened by that. And I had this conversation with my partner at the time being like, you know, I should just move to Sydney. Is that something you'd consider? Because, you know, there are more job opportunities for me in Australia and the pay is better. I have friends there. My parents are in Australia. Like it just, it didn't feel like there was anything left for me in Wellington other than this relationship really. And, um, 
yeah, two months later, we ended up breaking up. And you'd think that that would have been a catalyst for me to go, well, this is it, I'm out. But yet again, at the exact same time as that was happening, I got a new job and this job has turned out to be amazing for me. Like it's just a great project and I really enjoy it. And I've just found a really good kind of vibe that just really works with me. And yeah, now I've been in Wellington almost seven years and I love this city. Like, don't get me wrong, it tests me every single day. The weather is terrible and I hate it. But I think if you live in Wellington by choice, you have made a calculated decision. You have to choose it. And every part of the decision that's led to me living here has felt like fate. It's felt like there's always been an intervention to keep me here. Like, whether, whenever I could have made a decision to leave or run away, I've been served with a reason that felt bigger than me to keep me here. So yeah, that's just my little weird fate story. Oh, I love it. And thank you for sharing. I've often had those moments too where you need a nudge from the universe and you end up doing something that you think is very contrary to yourself. The nudge seems like it's maybe a choice different than you'd make, but you kind of have to just let go of what you think you know and take a leap. This one small moment happened to like shape your life, right? Even our friendship is an act of fate when you think about it. Yeah. Oh, I think about that a lot, actually. That and, and I think we talked about it in the first episode where we constantly run into and around mm. each other. Like we had friends of friends and like we were turning up on opposite days of the same writers group and like worked at the same magazine for months without <laughs> seeing each other because you were in one department. I was in a different like all of these things like we were supposed yeah, to be friends. You know, it was like pushing us together. And every time we missed each other, it was yeah. like, no, come on, <laughs> tightening the net. OK, well, did you have a moment of wonder this week? I did, actually. Uh, so I've been doing Pilates for a couple of weeks, like three weeks. And I missed last Friday because I was a bit sneezy. and but I, So I missed it. So I did a makeup class on Tuesday, which was with a different group of people, which was fine. And on Friday morning, when it rolled around again, it hadn't been the whole week. Uh, and I was kind of dreading it. But when I got there, I just felt so happy that I had done it. Like, I'm here it's only been a few days. Like, it's always hard. It's not an easy class for me. I'm super not flexible because I am shaped like a potato and I'm about as flexible as a potato. It's okay. We've discussed this. Potatoes are the best. Um, but I was really enjoying myself. And I, the whole time I was like, this is difficult. I'm not doing very well, but like, I don't have to do 10 reps. I can do eight. Like I was forgiving myself. And I realized I'm not, I'm not really good at being the person who goes in and is okay with getting a B mm. in the class, I either drop the class or fail the class or get an A++. So my moment of wonder was like, I'm actually enjoying something that's really outside of my wheelhouse. I'm feeling better for doing it, even if I am sore. <laughs> I have obliques, Jen. Who knew? <laughs> I didn't know. Who needs them? Like, I really did have a moment where I was like, this is something that I'm liking and I want to keep doing because I am feeling it. And um, also, look. Ooh, muscles. I know. I have a shoulder and a bicep. Wow. I love your baby bicep. It's great. I know. This side, too. I'm very impressed with myself. So that was my moment of wonder. It was that I'm exercising in a group and I'm committing to go and I'm actually turning up. Amazing. getting a B in the class. A low B, but it's a B. Oh, that's great. That's a hard thing. Like, I'm definitely <laughs> one of those people as well. If I'm not instantly good at it, then I just give up. And that's something that I consciously push myself on now. I'm like, no, just keep going. You can't just be like, well, exactly. oh no, this is hard. I'm not going to do it. Like, that's a ridiculous way to go through life. 
Yeah. It should be noted that the reason I say I'm getting a B in the class is because I'm get, getting eight out of 10 reps for a lot of these things. 80%. And that's 80%, mm-hmm. which is a B. And like, nobody else is grading me. The teacher isn't grading me. She's happy to adjust if I need it. She doesn't say anything if I don't do my roll ups. Like, I'm the only one grading myself. The only competition is the person you were yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my motivational poster is, do you want to sit and listen to a podcast? That sounds like a great idea. You should do that. You deserve it. You work hard. It's true. It's very true. (laughs) Yeah. So how about you? Did you have a moment of wonder? I did. Mine's a bit weird. So yesterday I went to an O week, which is orientation week at university. Um, It's down at Canterbury Uni. So I had to go to Christchurch for the day and i saw your beautiful plane picture i'm so jealous it was like i've been going to christchurch a lot for work and it's just like always gorgeous weather and just like amazingly still and beautiful and i'm like sort of becoming obsessed with christchurch but anyway um so we're down at the uni for work and we're standing around at orientation day marker day and i just really all week have been dreading it because i'm not an extrovert i don't enjoy talking to people i didn't like students when i was a student let alone now as an you know an Mm -hmm. adult i was having a really bad like body image day i didn't want to go i didn't feel comfortable in my like what i was wearing and i had to wear this brand t-shirt that was too big for me and everything was terrible of course and also all week Mm -hmm. i kind of thought it was going to get cancelled because we had this like brief lockdown and I'm like yes does this mean I don't have to go but no unfortunately (laughs) we don't have a rampaging pandemic in New Zealand (laughs) selfish (laughs) I always want things to be cancelled so I completely understand your point (laughs) like they cancelled all of last year and I was like oh darn (laughs) I have to stay home I felt so bad that I was like really gunning for this lockdown I'm like wow wow (laughs) what a privilege that I feel like I deserve a week's of lockdown like just two weeks is that too much to ask everyone else has had it (laughs) I just don't want to put real pants on for a couple of weeks please yes I mean that is the ultimate privilege that I can even think that Mm, we're very lucky that we live in countries where (laughs) everything's being managed fairly well yeah but then i was down there and you know set up the stall and whatever and had a couple of people come around and said some you know gave them my spiel and the super like so it was me my colleague and our our supervisor who'd gone down and my supervisor was like oh jen you can tell that you're in like comms because you're just so good at this you're so good at talking to people and i'm like thanks i'm 96 percent introverted i've been tested (laughs) and then like one of the girls like told me my skirt was really pretty and like people were really nice Mm -hmm. and they were just like quite adorable these little baby students who think they're such adults and so it was actually not that bad but then my moment of wonder is when one girl came up and she had like food with her like you know it was like lunchtime she had a bowl of food and I'm like oh that looks nice and she's like oh yeah it's from nanny's food truck and I was just like literally my face lit up you know when you read in books about your face lighting up because Nanny's mm-hmm. food truck used to be in Wellington and I used to love going. They did these amazing waffle fries and like a great burger and it was mm. just so good. And then they moved and that was probably like two years ago. And I'd forgotten that they'd moved to Christchurch. And then I found out that they were at this market day and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So off I went, got myself some Nanny's for lunch, had my waffle fries. Just, yeah, it was amazing. And I'm like, oh, these little serendipitous moments that make life worth it. And then it was two o'clock and I got to go home and it wasn't like the worst day ever. So yeah, that was my moment of wonder. Oh, I'm so glad. It's funny how like the things that we dread so much are actually not usually that bad, right? When we get to them, when we Mm. do them. 
the dread is almost worse. Like, hundred percent. The three days dreading it beforehand was the worst bit. On the day, I could just get up and go and do it, but like thinking about it was the worst bit. And I have yeah. to do it again on Monday. Well, I think I would have been very comforted if I had been a baby eighteen-year-old and had seen someone as cool as Aww. you. Anyway, right back on track. <laughs> should we? Should we do? Should I do the chapter yes, summaries? Please. All right. I actually really like this week's reading. I thought it was great. Mm. Chapter nine. Richard and Dor crash a fancy event at the British Museum organized by dun 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 Jessica. <gasps> Dor finds the Angelus and Richard causes a scene. They travel through the Angelus to meet the Angel Islington. The Marquis seeks out Croup and Vandemar. Chapter ten. Islington gets Dor and Richard drunk and then sends them back to the museum. Hunter is waiting for them. The Marquis tries to bargain with Croup and Vandemar for information. It does not go well. Hunter, Dor, and Richard have strange dreams. Hunter takes Dor and Richard to Serpentine of the Seven Sisters, where they recover from their hangovers. The Marquis is caught by Croup and Vandemar. Oh my gosh, the Marquis bit off more than he can chew. Yeah, so much happened. A lot happened. Now, um, I really struggled with this week's theme because I do not believe in, like, fate as a predestined mm-hmm. thing. So I had to find a way to look at it that worked with my, like, internal... And look, maybe I should have been going, like, oh, airy-fairy, fate is what, like, you know, like, it's all handed. But I honestly believe that, like, what, what chance what role of the die, like whatever happens, that is just like the fate. Mm. But I don't think, to me, I don't know that there's a design to it necessarily. It's interesting. Yeah. Like cause when I think of fate, I don't necessarily think of like, oh, this is a decision that's, or this is an event that has occurred to put me on my path. And I guess that is what, what fate mm. kind of like you had a, you have a fate that you're walking towards, I guess, but I've never really, that's yeah. not really how it works in my mind. It's just like when something happens, I'm like, oh, this was meant to happen because it feels right, I guess. That's how I think of fate. Yeah. Yeah, fate, that, as most of us understand, I think is us retconning events into our <laughs> narratives, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we've decided that this is how it was meant to be because it worked out or didn't, but it had an effect yeah. on us. So we've, we've put it into our own narrative as like fate or change of fate or twist of fate. I did notice that a lot of people make a distinction between fate as being like the random ordered events and like what what you do with it so destiny would be like you make your own destiny but fate is like what happens around and to you if that makes sense so like you choosing to stay in wellington as per your story that's you affecting your own destiny but like all of the little nudges all of the reasons that you ended up choosing to stay in the beginning were like fate and you chose to stay in the fate the choosing was what made that your destiny you still have a choice you still have a choice to decide based on yeah. the decisions that you have. Yeah, I, I also kind of struggled with it. I also struggled with compassion, I'm not going to lie. Like, there's not a lot of compassion. Oh, <laughs> no, everybody's so mean. Or apathetic, which is worse. So, I mean, I love the chapters, but I was like, oh, themes are short supply this week, so it'll be an interesting discussion. I too love the chapters. I, I had a lot more fun with this one. It felt like things were finally happening, but in a way that I enjoyed. Yeah, there was less like worrying about why or the mythology of things, and it was just action. Like, yeah. And I did go off on a research tangent because I can't help myself. And I'll talk about that when we get to our tangential section at the end. Um, so one place where I thought fate kind of came up, there's on page 187, Richard says, but I saw you. It had been bothering him for a while. 
Because he's talking about to door about whether people can see them or not, which I frankly think he should have a better handle on by now. Like, we are so far into this, Richard. Yeah. Why are you still having this conversation about, oh, people are going to see me? Like, let it go, right? And Dor's like, oh, no one sees you unless you actually talk to them. And he's like, but I saw you. And yeah, he did see her and she doesn't know why. And that feels like a moment of the universe putting something in front of him, right? Like, he could have made a choice to keep going yeah. with Jessica, but he didn't. And like, that has set yeah. his life on a path. I really feel like Richard's fate always meant to point him to London below. I mean, we, the narrative itself has said that at the very beginning of the prologue when he meets that woman and she reads this poem and she says, no London that I've ever seen. And it starts with doors. And and so she's already told him that his life will be upended or changed in some way. So we knew as a, an audience, we knew that was coming. So I think we can say that that was fated, that Richard was always fated to fall into London below. And I wonder why he saw Dor as well. But I also wonder, because he sees everything like that. He always gives money mm-hmm. to the homeless. He talks to people. He saw that beautiful homeless child in Covent Garden. I still find that a little bit objectifying, but I, I don't know what it is about that. But I drew a parallel between Jessica at the party yes. noticing Richard. Absolutely. And Dor said explicitly, she said, oh, it was right there on... It's, I think on the same page, on 187, unless you do something stupid like talk to them, right? Yeah. She probably won't even notice you. But she does notice yeah. him. Yeah. And she notices him before she speaks to him. And also... And, oh, no, you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think we're going to say the same thing. Uh, even at the beginning of the chapter of chapter nine, she's talking about how it would be so nice if she had a boyfriend to go with on the weekends to galleries. But no, she can't think about it. And, and she talks about putting that idea out of her head because it's like a bead of mercury that slides away from her. Mercury is really poisonous and terrible mm. for you. But it comes up again in another place that... Yeah. yeah. Oh, Richard slid out of her head like a bead of mercury trickling through her fingers. So I think it's really interesting that Jessica has this... She obviously feels the loss of Richard, but she doesn't know it's Richard. And I'm wondering, how do you, like, what do you do with someone who's having a trauma response to an absence that they're not even aware of? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I had a lot of complicated feelings about this. I just, I'd love to get your take on it. It reminds me a bit of like, I don't know if you've watched the show called I Will Destroy You. I have heard about it, but I haven't seen it's it. It's really intense because she's dealing with the aftermath of like a sexual assault that she can't really remember. And this it sort of comes back to her in these fragments. And that's sort of what's happening. Like, obviously, Jessica, it's not, it's not a, an assault or anything like that. But she's got, there's something that niggles in the back of her mind. and Something has happened, but she doesn't know what it is. And it's tied up with this person that she can't hold on to when she sees him it reminded me of people who have like the extreme face blindness i think there's a jennifer niven book one of the jennifer niven books both like i've read the first two i haven't read her third one but they're all very good and the second one deals with a kid who has who is concussed as a child and has face blindness so he doesn't recognize anyone so like he gets in trouble with his girlfriend for making out with her cousin but they have really similar features (laughs) so he's just making out with a girl he thinks is his girlfriend but it oh, isn't. Oh, no. Because he can't tell the... Like, he physically cannot tell them apart because he can't remember people's faces. He recognizes voices and he, like, catalogs things about them to remember. But I couldn't imagine waking up and everybody being a stranger all of yeah, the time. it's kind of terrifying. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, Jessica immediately... Rec- like, she doesn't recognize him, but she notices him, right? So she sees him. She sees mm. Dor because she's Dor is with Richard. Then she points him out to... What's his name? Clarence. She's like, him over there. And then he doesn't slide out of Clarence's mind either because Clarence goes to get the security guards and then he points Richard out to the security guards. And it's like, why is Clarence also now remembering Richard? Because they should just slide out of his head. 
yeah. but he doesn't. Yeah, I wonder if it's something to do about, like, we, we were talking about the magic of Richard being erased, is that it was like a contagion, mm. so like, all of the people that might interact with each other about Richard, like it's viral mm-hmm. or something, I guess. I'm wondering if that happens in reverse as well, where like, if, if you've broken that spell and you break it to someone else, then they're like aware, mm. and they stay aware for longer. I was also thinking that maybe because Richard hasn't been erased for that long, not as long as, say, some of the other people, mm. so maybe he still has like vestiges of London above that makes him more sticky than maybe Dor would be. Yeah. Because they didn't rewrite time or reality, right? Like, Richard might have been erased, but he did exist before that. And Jessica did spend her weekends and time with him. Like, all of his things were still in the flat, even though he was in it. And they couldn't see him, right? Like, all of the material effects of his life were there. She must be walking around with this engagement ring, like, having to somehow justify its existence. It makes me think of, like, the Obliviation spell in Harry Potter, like, you know when Hermione obliviates her parents and she, like, disappears from photos and stuff? But yeah. there are other things that she would have touched in life. And her parents must be like, you know, they have friends. Like, does it does she automatically slide out of her parents' friends' minds? Like, she must have gone to school yeah. with people when she was, like, in primary school. Is she erased from their minds? Like, it's, it's such a wide-ranging thing. Yeah, I do wonder about that. I think we just have to accept in the narrative that, like, these people don't have extended family, cousins. Everyone I know has so many different acquaintances and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends. Like, the world is a connected place. The mystery of Jessica. I do think it's really interesting that she keeps seeing Richard. She sees him and she remembers him enough. And she also has that Richard-shaped hole, even though she doesn't realize it's a Richard-shaped hole. Um, I think he was really not compassionate with her. I agree. I agree. I think he was a jerk. I wrote in the margin, (laughs) this is so unkind. It's so unkind. It's not her fault that she can't remember him. If nobody can remember him, it's not her fault. The fact that she keeps trying to connect, I would be like super hopeful for, right? You should have been like, oh, you spotted me. You should have been like, oh, yeah. But he's just so devoid of compassion. And I don't really know why. It didn't feel very Richard-like. Earthquake, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did she just have an earthquake? Yeah. She was quite... Oh my gosh. She's quite, she's quite strong. Oh my gosh. She was real jerky. I don't know that I've ever experienced an earthquake. Yeah, they're not good. Like, they just, like, they make me feel seasick afterwards, I think, because of the... And that one was quite a jolt. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine. There's not another one, so it's fine. <laughs> okay. Phew. Um, yeah, I think Richard was just... Yeah, it didn't feel like him. Exactly. He was just a bit too callous. Especially the bit where he talked about, like, you know, what she says in bed. I was like, mate, why are you doing this? Like, this is like the ultimate shaming of women. Yeah, there was a line where she was saying, like, is this one of those jokes that people tell that she didn't get, that she never seemed to get, which I really felt like, oh, that that really speaks to me. Um, That was me in all of primary and high school, even through much of college. Like, I just did not get the joke a lot of the time. Like, I just genuinely don't get the punchline. Like, I don't get it. And so to have that in the text where you have this person who's incredibly successful, incredibly well put together, has this definite set of what needs to happen, very clear, very ambitious, and is treated poorly, I guess. And then for her to reveal this little vulnerability that she doesn't often get the joke, I really felt for her in that moment that this is somebody who doesn't have a lot of close connections. And I think maybe Richard was one of her closest, Mm. like one of her people. And whatever their relationship was, it might not have been perfect. It might not have been great. I do think that they were fated to meet just because they had a huge effect on each other, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
And yeah, there was that moment where, you know, they met in the gallery and it did seem like a moment, especially mm. from Jessica's point of view, it would have seen like a big fated thing, right? I would have absolutely written that as a romantic moment in my personal narrative if I'd met someone like yeah. that. Yeah. And if we think back at, you know, Richard kind of described how he tried to convince Jessica that, that he wasn't a museum person and she's just like, whatever, and just dragged him along to museums anyway. And, you know, it was kind of like you were supposed to, it felt like you were supposed to kind of read Jessica as the bad guy in that moment. But now I'm like, if this is the fated moment in your romantic moment and you think this is something you have yeah. in common, then you're trying to, like, relive it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Can we also talk about how being with Jessica for all those years really prepared Richard for life in London below? Mm. So he's had all of this experience going to these really interesting and varying places. She, I mean, like, look, he, she made him into the kind of Londoner who can go to all of the places and understand all of the things. Mm. The fact that she walked him around museums incessantly meant he's used to walking. So walking around in London below, not a problem. Um, he knows his two maps. He's seen a lot of weird stuff. So he's kind of able to maybe get his head around the weird stuff he's seeing now. He's connecting these events which are really fantastic and outside the realm of what he would consider possibility to stuff that he experienced before with Jessica. Like she, their relationship actually really prepared him for a life in London below. So I think it's fate that they met. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Something that infuriated me is that he didn't recognize the angels. What is it called? Angels over England. This is a massive project that Jessica has been working on for months. It obviously means a lot to her. She would have spoken to him about it multiple times. And there's no moment where he's like, oh, I know about this. He's still surprised to see Jessica. It just like infuriates me for what a complete unengaged person he must have been in that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I had the same thing. I kept thinking like the whole time she was not listening to him. He wasn't listening to her. Like they were not listening to each no. other. He was just falling into the boyfriend-shaped hole that Jessica had to fill. And he mm. just didn't pay attention, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get the sense they're not meant to be together because of the the way that their relationship is set up. Like, oh, you know, they would hold each other and say they loved each other very much and they would both believe mm. it. Um, But, like, isn't that... A, like, if you both believe it and work for it, isn't that just as real as if it's real? Well, I mean, what is the real thing? Like, isn't... When you, you know, you're not in love forever. You have to wake up every morning and kind of choose the other person, don't you? Like, you have to actively yeah. work at it. That's what love is. Yeah, love is staying and doing the work. Yeah, because yeah. it's not always easy. It's not always a breeze. You're not always going to necessarily even like the person. There might be days where it's really hard, but you you choose that person because you love them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you grow with them and you work together like that that's the yeah you look for the third thing and you look outward for jessica she thought their third thing was going out and being part of a cultural community and for richard he just wanted to i don't know have someone i guess maybe i don't know if he even like yeah i don't know it doesn't feel like in his recollection of events that jessica really gave him a choice whether he wanted to be her boyfriend or not he was just like oh well she's such yeah. a force of nature and this she made the decision and so he just went along with her he doesn't take a, like I said last time, he doesn't have a lot of agency. I feel like he just follows around different people mm. as he is directed to. It's like he doesn't take, he doesn't choose destiny. He just lets fate happen. Yeah. Like he's now trailing along mm. behind door and he doesn't really do anything. He just kind of follows her around. Yeah. I found it interesting that the Serpentine was like, oh, this is the hero in the story. And I was like, really? This guy? <laughs> like it's not door? Door's not the hero? Yeah, I, I think that was probably 
I thought, is that Richard's fate to be a hero? Is she like reading the signs and seeing into the future mm. and being like, oh, he's going to go through some massive change and come out to be the hero? He must rise to something. Like, this book will be terrible and we wouldn't have liked it and wanted to yeah. come back to it if he doesn't rise to it at some point. So I, I know we're going to see something that either redeems him or makes him more interesting. <laughs> it's just hard to find it now. Um, did you also find it a little gross when he was wondering about whether or not to kiss Dor? Oh, yeah. And then he's like, oh, he didn't really know if he wanted to. I'm like, you're both drunk. Stop being so gross. I'm glad that he was able to stop and kind of put that into like, do I actually want to do this or is just is this just what I'm expected to do? That felt like kind of the first time that Richard actually took responsibility for the choices that he could make rather than just like, can I tag along? He was looking at this girl and thinking like, she's beautiful. I'm feeling it. Should I kiss her? And then wait, do I want mm. to? And that whole scene is actually him having some agency and doing something. He like goes dancing. He goes dancing down the stairs. Mm. And this is the first time that he's actually ever done anything spontaneously or out of his own volition, really. And then, yeah, he makes the decision not to kiss Dor. I also don't know if Dor wants him to kiss her. Because she's like, he's not my hero. Yeah, she's very definite. And look, I think she's got her own agency and she's got her own quest and Richard's really kind of joined her quest. I think that his quest he still thinks is to get his life back, mm. but we know that it's not going to happen in the end. So like what does he actually want from this? What what fate gives him is he going to be okay with or is he going to pine for the thing that he doesn't have anymore? Mm. And I wonder if like even though he has a good heart, is that going to be subverted in order for him to survive in London below? That was the other thing I kept thinking like can you really afford to be compassionate in London below? Yeah, cuz look at all the the examples of that, right? There's not many. Yeah. I also thought about, you know, we start this section with the room full of angels and all these different angels of every kind. And I thought there was something there about angels kind of being like the shepherds of fate, like people who, you know, guide you to your destiny. They're the makers of your fate. And Islington has now stepped in and he's going to, you know, he's asked them to do something. So he is now shaping their fate, right? Through giving them this quest. Yeah, it's now become an official quest. It's we need to open this door and you need to help me open this door and then we can both learn from it, which I found very strange because why can't door just open the door? What what do they need the key for? And is it the door that is the one they noticed when they were sitting down with him, the one that's mm. edged in black metal? And also, how are they going to get back to him if they can't take the Angelus a second time? Yeah, he gave them the um the little small black statuette and he said, you're going to need this to get to me the second time. And I was like, okay, so is it fate then that the Marquis noticed that in Portico study and stole it? Because are they going to yeah. need that second one? No? Foreshadowing. <laughs> I wonder. And I wonder if that was left in her father's study for her to be able to get to, or for Portico himself to be able to get back to Islington. Mm. It was funny that they got drunk on Atlantean wine. Uh, Dora's ancestor, okay. Atlantean. Okay, I'm glad you noticed that as well, because I was like, <laughs> um, yeah, so given to him by her ancestors. So I'm like, does that mean that Dor is descended from Atlanteans? Or does he just mean that Dor's ancestors happened to find this wine that was Atlantean? Yeah, I think it means that she's Atlantean. I think there's the idea that Atlantis is like full of magical people and that the like last of them around the world are sort of the people who fall through the cracks. Yeah, but like, does that mean that there's like all these refugees, like the Atlanteans come to London below as refugees when Atlantis sank? That they come with... Mm? Yeah, that's what I think. That's cool. I love that. You know, that's why there are some people in London below who've just always been there and then there are people like Richard who just turn up. Yeah. So look, I've always been hardcore into like 
secret cities and underground places and lost this and mythical that. So this, yeah, I love the idea that the angel Islington is the shepherd or the guardian of these places. But like, should he be in charge of another city if he let the first one sink? I'm just saying. Yeah. And I also found it interesting that in Hunter's dream, she had like a dream about Bangkok below, if you will. And I'm like, Mm. how many of these are there? Is there a below to every major city? Is there a below to regional towns? <laughs> is she the same person in every one? Are they like one identity linked across several places? Are these lives she's lived before? Yeah, how does she travel between one? Like if you're, if you know, I don't know. How do you move from one underground to another underground? Yeah, I guess you find the doors. Um, Door in her dream, we, we did, you, I think you noted that they were dreaming... Mm. In the chapter summary, you said that they're dreaming. They all had very strange dream. Hunter's dream was about Bangkok below. Dor's dream was about learning to open things from her father. And he said, you know, everything wants to be open. All things want to open. You must feel that need and use it. But then she asks him, who hid your journal for you? And I love that because that answers a question for me, which is Dor was in there cleaning up the body and she didn't find it, which means that somebody had it after her father died. Mm. And we know it wasn't Krupa Vandermark because they would have had it. They would have taken it, right? Mm-hmm. So I am drawing a conclusion that someone else was in the study between Krupa and Vandermark and Dor because somebody put the journal away, which kind of makes me think that something's fishy about that whole thing. I love that she has this dream about her father. I'm a bit sad she doesn't remember it. But, like, is it fate that the journal was put away? And that she mm. found it later? Or is it, like, someone's choice that's directing her? Like, how much of other people's choices are we allowing to be fair? Yeah, and, like, this is the pro- fundamental problem with fate, right? Because if it's a predestined thing, then other people's actions shouldn't be able to derail your fate, you know? Like, you shouldn't mm. be able to interfere with something that is preordained. Which I guess is the whole thing about, like, Greek myth, right? The more they try to fight against the prophecy, the more it happens. Yeah. Mm. The older I get and the more that I work toward being a better person. Like, that's all we have. That is all we have. Everything intangible beyond us, whatever we believe, it's nothing if we're not good here now. I don't know. I feel like compassion is one of those big tenets of that. And I just really struggled. I didn't see a lot of it. I thought when Hunter was looking after the Mm -hmm. two drunk kids, so to speak, she was a little more gentle with Dora, which I thought was compassionate. Yeah. But she didn't care at all if Richard fell down. She was just like, thump, here you go. And she splashed an entire bucket of water on his head. But with Dawes, she just like splashed a little bit on her face to wake her up. Yeah, But maybe really I also thought like it was kind of maybe a reproach from Hunter. Like, you know, you should, you were, like, I couldn't go to London above to look after Dawes. You should have done a bit of a better job instead of just turning up here drunk. Yeah. You were the responsible adult, yeah. Richard. Why were you not looking after this child? Did you take her out into London and get her drunk? You did? Oh my goodness. <laughs> did you think that the serpentine... Um, she gave Richard a hangover cure, which was quite lovely of her. Yeah, and then she also said, you know, I won't hurt you as, you know, your guests, which is also compassionate. Mm. And I think it was compassion from Hunter to take them there, because I'm not entirely sure... Like, it, m- it might be costing Hunter something. Like, serpentine, serpentine yeah. all seems very overly familiar with Hunter. Obviously, Hunter used to work for her. But Hunter also does not seem overly comfortable with that kind of familiarity yeah so i'm like the fact that she went there to keep these kids safe essentially that's compassionate yeah it's her job but also yeah she she was doing the best she could with the limited resources she had at the time i think and she had to carry them there (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, that, that would not be great. Also, she doesn't sleep very much. I feel very tired when I read her sections. Mm-hmm. I just really want her to lie down and have a really good nap. I think she deserves it. Um, I want to know what you think about this. Do you think the hunter has a fate that she's avoiding? Yeah, there's definitely something she needs to do, right? There's something that she is, like, yeah. Because Serpent... Is it like discharging an obligation yeah, or... because Serpentine says, um, says to her, you're hunting the beast then. You'll need the spear. So there's obviously something, and like I remember that there is this thing that you know motivates Hunter, something that she needs to do, but I can't remember the specifics of it. And then she's been away for so long, so it feels like she's obviously been avoiding something. Yeah, I wonder if she's just come back now because she's been fated to. I guess has has like circumstance led her back to this opportunity, or is she coming back because she's choosing to? Mm. Um, also, did you think that the Serpentine, like, did you think she was being cruel about Dor's father for a reason? Or do you think she just didn't think it would affect Dor to hear her say, see, I told you so, about her father Oh, uh, yeah, dead? I think she's just one of those people who's just doesn't care, right? Like, she just says these things and was like, yeah. oh, yeah, kind of like Sherlock, <laughs> you know? Mm. Does that speak to a lack of compassion or is that more... Like, just a personality trait. I think it's still a lack of compassion, even if it is a personality trait. Even if you can't necessarily read other people or, like, appreciate their emotions, that doesn't justify just being cruel. I agree. When you have kids, or when you work with kids, you you know that you have to teach them how to be people. So, like, my job as a parent is to produce good people and teach my children how to be compassionate. So that's mm-hmm. a skill we work on. Like we look at people and we look at we look in storybooks and we say, "Oh, the girl is crying. Why is she crying?" We figure it out. "Oh, she's sad. Why is she sad?" "Oh, you know, she broke a window and she's upset." Yeah. Like you do teach compassion. So I-, I wonder if there's just not a lot of opportunity in London below for it to be taught or if it's viewed as a weakness or if it's just something that as you're older cuz most of these people seem really like immortal. Yeah. Is it be- because they've been around for so long and seen so many people come and go that they've just kind of limited what they can do and feel. Yeah, it's kind of the ultimate argument for immortality, right? It, like, makes you cold, makes you incapable of yeah. compassion. But yeah, I think that comes up with everything. Like, it comes up in all sort of vampire fiction as well. It's always like, you know, if mm. you think about Interview with a Vampire, where you've got, like, Lestat being so cold and Louis just despairing because he's such an emo vampire <laughs> and everything hurts so much. I'm like, mate, you need to chill. The original Edward. And then you even have, like, you know, Jack Harkness and Torchwood, who has just been hardened by the fact that he's been alive for so long. And, like, yeah. You lose so many people you love that it starts to just suck. And you stop you love caring. Else. You can't afford to care anymore. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm the person who's both, like, love is everything and also love is nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, go forth, love people, and let yourself be broken. But also, it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything wrong with being compassionate to people, even in casual ways, because you make them feel better. I agree. And I think, like, kind of this idea of the lack of compassion of old things maybe comes up when Mr. Stockton gives his speech. Like, on Mm. page 194, he says, you know, he gives this whole thing about the Angelus, and he says, It decayed, fell apart under the stresses and strains of modern times, went rotten, went bad. And I just felt like that can be applied to so many things, like Krupp and Vandermar, even the Marquis. Like, he's been around for so long. Who knows how long? Even London below, you know, like, it's been left to fall apart under the strains of modern times. Yeah, it's all about decay and what's lost and forgotten. I I thought it was very interesting that Mr. Stockton was so taken by this cathedral door. Yeah, that felt like fate as well. Like, he found this door where he needed it as a, you know, a young man down Mm. on his luck. And this door called to him. And now he's like, now maybe some other person can get it and be inspired. It's 
it does feel like a fated moment for him. Yeah, and I, I mean, look at how many things in this chapter really, in these two chapters, really align all of the pieces, right? Dora needs to find the Angelus. Jessica's been working on this angels exhibition for however long. She's engaged to Richard. When Dora's being hunted, she needs to find someone mm-hmm. safe. Richard, Jessica's fiance, is there. He's sucked into London below because he helped Dor. But all of these threads come together. It's like they chose the most compassionate person with the most proximity to the path that Dor needed to take. And that was Richard. And also the fact that the Angelus is actually a door seems quite fated. Like, Mm. it's a literal cathedral door. Yeah, that reminded me of the door. I know I bang on about Chepstow all the time, but it really is such a good castle. <laughs> Their front gate is the oldest surviving wooden front gate in Europe, I think. Oh, cool. It's like 900 years old or something. Um, and it's now in a portico of its own because they want it out of the weather. But it is a fantastic door. That's amazing. Yeah, I think I think that's all I have to say about fate and compassion. I, I really felt like I was grasping at straws for a lot of this chapter because I really wanted to be able to find something that felt right but I yeah again I don't know if I could really say that fate is in charge I just I look at it too much like a writer mm, fair <laughs> enough obviously someone's putting all of these threads together <laughs> yeah it's a hard thing to park right like mm. same um do you have any tangents you'd like to go off on I I've already mentioned the Atlantean thing and also Richard not listening to Jessica talking about this amazing exhibition um there's that section on page 184 where Jessica is like musing about Clarence and she says Jessica was convinced that Clarence had only got this job because he was a openly gay and b openly black. What? Yeah, she's like and thus it was a source of general irritation to her that he was by far the most efficient, competent and best assistant that she's had today. Then that should just overwrite that initial thought. Like why are you still thinking mm. it however long you've worked together? This book was definitely written in like the mid 90s. Yeah. But yeah, it is a very much what moment, and it does definitely put the book in a time period that we're not in anymore. It definitely dates it. A bit like the how he has a flip phone. With and an it's considered <laughs> It's considered far more sleek and modern than the communicators on Star Trek. Now, I just watched all of Star Trek Discovery, and their communicators are literally the little bit bips on their chest. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is so old. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, yeah, he pushed the antenna in on the phone. I'm like, okay, sure. Like, kind of, yeah, it did pull me out of the text a little bit. And another moment for me that happened that was when Jessica introduces Mr. Stockton when he arrives. You know, she goes up to stage and she's like, oh, introduces him. I cannot imagine a world where any marketing person would do that at an event like this. There would be an MC, there would be someone. It wouldn't just be the Mm. 26-year-old who pulled this event together going up there being like, um, guys. Yeah, like to me, this is more of an it's more of an events person thing, really. It's an event being organized. Yes. So, yes. but even then, I cannot imagine any of my friends in events ever getting up and introducing someone. I just not an event like this where there are personalities, capital P, like some twenty yeah. six year old just going up and being like, "Hello, guys!" Like, I just I can't imagine this world. Maybe it happens. Like, if <laughs> if there's an events person listening to this who has introduced someone important, like, let me know because I just. We are confused. What people in marketing, PR, event management, what would happen in this situation? Like, Please surely tell us. there would be an MCM. Also, keeping your guests outside for like half an hour, like with no, no snacks. let them come in. Send the champagne out at least. Like, what is going on? Absolutely. Why were they not circulating food in the? Uh, look, yeah, okay, <laughs> I, we're agreed. This party might be a success to Jessica, 
But the people waiting outside were annoyed, and that's not a good party for anybody. No. I did enjoy that when discussing um, the Angel Collection, they used a quote from Time Out. Like, I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> it was a clever <laughs> bit of writing. Okay, now tell me about your um, serpentine thread. Like, I just Googled Serpentine London. It's a man-made lake in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was one of the first of its kind that was, like, made to look natural, which then inspired all the other man-made lakes and parks to start looking natural. So instead of being, like, a big rectangle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I was also looking to the Seven Sisters because that's just something that crops up for me in a lot of places. It's actually the name of a constellation, mm-hmm. the Pleiades, which is, like, one of, it's probably my second favorite constellation, um, one that I really love. Seven Sisters is actually a place in London in Tottenham, which I don't oh, know yeah. anything about. I forgot about that. Yeah, so apparently it's it used to be seven elm trees that all grew like in a circle around a walnut tree, yeah. and it was called the Seven Sisters, but now the trees aren't there, so they replanted a bunch of trees in 1997, and each of the trees was planted by a different family that had seven sisters, which is kind of cool. Right, So yeah. there are seven sisters in Seven Sisters still, but not the same ones as when it was originally I named Seven Sisters. I completely forgot about that, because the Seven Sisters tube stop is on the Victoria line, which is the one I used to catch home. But I never ventured yeah. that far home. But, like, yeah, I just, yeah, didn't even recognize that. <laughs> yeah, it's wild, isn't it? Like, there's Seven Sisters everywhere. And this is the thing I really love, is that this constellation is visible pretty much everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Um. But it's also a Southern Hemisphere constellation. So it's a really important um, constellation yeah. for Maori people as well, isn't it? It's the, the I, I can't say it. Yes, Matari. Matari. Matariki. Yeah. Matariki. Yeah. It's like the Lunar New Year. Yeah. For... And from next year, Matariki will be a public holiday in New Zealand for the first time. They've just made <gasps> it a public amazing. holiday, which is great. Um, yeah. So that's the start of the new year. I'll link something. I'll find something to link about it because it was really fascinating that it's got such huge historical significance and, for like every major culture. And the, in the Seven world. Sisters is not in the air at the same time as Orion. Like they're at alternating times, right? Because isn't the theory that Orion is hunting the Seven Sisters? Yes. So that's the Greek mythology is that Orion is hunting them because he wants to woo them. Um, and he actually wanted to woo the youngest son, which is Merope, which is the name of Tom Riddle's mother. Mm. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but Orion is known as the hunter. Oh, yeah, of course, because he's got the... So yeah. there you go. Yeah. I love the idea of Orion being a girl. Now, Orion is my favorite constellation because when I was a wee little child walking to the bus stop at 6.30 in the morning so I could get on the bus at the beginning of the stop rather than the one that stopped at 7.40 around the corner from my house where there were no seats and I would get stuck with like the bullies at the bus stop, I would get up early and walk. And in the winter mornings, you could see Orion. And I was like, I'm safe because Orion is right there. It's a total lie, right? Mm. But I felt it. So it's my favorite. So I love that the Pleiades and Orion are inextricably linked. Orion, I find, is like, yeah, that's my favorite too. Because I just love, yeah. like, it's, it's easy to spot, you know, where to look for it. But it's just, you know, he's got his cool belt. I also like the scorpion. That's my other favorite. Which scorpion? one? Scorpion. With the red. I think there's some sort of myth with Orion and the scorpion as well. I used to be really into astronomy when I was little. <laughs> I love constellations. I love hearing the stories about them. And I especially love knowing that every culture, every group has their own narrative about mm. it. Like how in England it's the plow, but in lots of other places it's the dipper. You yeah, know? and we don't, of course, don't have that here. No, Big Dipper Hoomst. Mm does not exist and that's why like I, people will say oh we all look up at the same stars i'm like factually incorrect <laughs> some of them we do i guess we all look up at orion half the year 
Um, the other thing that's really important about the Pleiades, the constellation, which I just really love, is that it's one of the first constellations that astronomers were able to understand that the stars are actually interacting. They're not just a grouping that we can see from Earth, but they're like a grouping together in space. Hmm. So, like, they interact and are a, like, actual group of stars together. Thank you, everyone, for putting up with my ADHD info dumping. That was amazing. I love that. That's cool, though, right? Because, like, when you there was nothing else to, to guide you, you had the stars. And so everyone, every culture made up their own little thing about what this meant. And I think it's so cool that everyone chose to fixate on the same ones. Mm, I kind of love it. I love that we've all been looking up as long as we've been on Earth. I don't really believe in fate, but I do believe in... Looking up and looking out and looking onward. I do too. I think that's when I like, I love looking at the stars. It makes me feel most at peace, I think. Do you have a character you'd like to spotlight this week? I was going to spotlight Jessica because I think Richard was so unkind and so mean in a moment where she was quite vulnerable. Mm. And I just think that's terrible. It's terrible to have this, you know, she doesn't remember and he is just so cruel and like, yeah. You need compassion when you can't remember things. And he failed at that moment. And so for anyone who's like really struggling through something and someone has just been unnecessarily mean to them, I think we all deserve a hug. (laughs) Yeah. I also wanted to spotlight Jessica. And I want to spotlight Jessica because she has trauma that she doesn't know she has. Mm. She has a Richard-shaped hole in her life and she doesn't know it. She knows that there's something not right. She just can't put her finger on it. And I can't think of anything worse than that helpless, angry feeling of impotence that you get when you know something's not right, but you're not in the know about what it is that's not right. Mm. So if you're feeling lost, angry, confused, like the joke is never clear to you Mm -hmm. and always wondering if you're the punchline, you don't deserve to feel that way. It's pretty rubbish. So yeah, absolutely. All right, so next week we'll be reading chapters 11 through 12 through the theme of transformation. I'm doing magic hands. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Well, are you ready to go off to your evening of drinks? I am. Or dinner. We're going to a Greek restaurant. (gasps) We haven't been to it before. It's called Oikos and it's supposed to be amazing. So I'll have to get changed and head off. I want full report when you come back after you have eaten and digested all of your beautiful food. I've already looked at the menu because that's the kind of person I am and I saw that there was halloumi gnocchi and I'm quite intrigued. Yum. Mm. I'm jealous. So I will report back. All right. Well, thank you for potting with me. This was so much fun. Thank you. You've really cheered me up after our stressful day. Yeah, you cheered me up. Exactly what I needed. Me too. Such a good... I'm glad that we managed to do it today, even though it was like people were coming at our schedules. We but held firm. you know firm. what? We respected our boundaries, and this is important to both of us, and we carved out the time, and we said, no, annoying people, you yep. will not intrude, and look We at have us. a ritual. Yeah. It's a commitment. We're making it. We're here. We're doing it. Yeah. Well, enjoy your evening, and I'll see you next week. Yeah. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. 
Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at www.marginaliapod.com.